Thanks, these guys. <coughs> Francis and Shelley don't need any introduction here to us. They're part of our family, have been for many years. Um, they've, there you go. They started the work in Shalom, as many of you know, and many have been there and been part of it. And um, that's been pretty incredible, pretty incredible what has happened. We did an interview a few weeks ago with, um, with Heather and Claire as well about the work of Shalom, which we continue to support. We'll talk about that in a moment or two. But um, I'm going to talk this morning about new road, new rules. That's my theme this morning. You can see it on the screen. And for you, it's new road, new rules. There's a call of God in your life, has been for years. And um, there's a new adventure, I suppose you could call it which has already begun. And um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Tell us a little bit about what this new adventure is, what you're going, where you're going, and what you're going to be doing. Okay. Um, I'll try and break it down uh, <laughs> um, the best I can. Okay. So basically, most of you know that me and Francis lead Shalom. And God took us on a journey a bit of a pilgrimage last year and he gave me a verse um, Isaiah 54 2 about enlarging your tent I actually thought it was for Shalom for the new building and, and, and all this for us um, getting a bigger place and, um, and all that type of stuff but when we went on our pilgrimage um, God started to work in our hearts um, he changed our direction. Um, when we come back, um, there was a door opened to go to Dublin to start a monastic community. Um, so we have been on a journey for, um, oh, I don't know how long now, um, just in prayer and discernment, seeing um, what the Lord wants to do. Um, I know that within my heart, is not just for Lurgan and Craigavon, but for Ireland, um, for people um, to be reconciled, not only to Jesus, but to each other. So. Tell us, whenever you say starting a, a monastic community, can you tell us a little bit, Francis, what, that, what that's going to look like, basically? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, a few retreats and corporate retreats. 
speaks in every society of people from Shalom and Commandine just to um, enter into that space and, and live with Jesus because we're, we're conscious that, that, that God has uh, plucked us from where we are and we have a heart for people on the margins and, um, and uh, there's not a lot of opportunities for people on the margins get into a retreat opportunity yeah. you know it's, there's only a lot of people who can afford it so maybe that's what God wants to do but yeah. I really do want to just keep in step with the Holy Spirit keep all my ideas in tension and just um, I think that word today a fix your eyes on Jesus yeah you know even I, this really I feel this is doing mm. this yeah is, is like a storm for me but but I just keep on in the psalm as well and right now it's where I want to fix my eyes on just want to follow him and I feel like Peter mm. uh, in the boat and um, I just want to keep the fix eyes on Jesus and follow him wherever he is us to go so <clears throat> the Lucan Centre Trevor Morrow many of you will know that the Presbyterian ran a centre down there ran it for 50 years as Francis said um, and then when Trevor um, retired, there was nobody really to take it over. They offered the site to 24-7 prayer. Um, and uh, Alan obviously sits on the board with 24-7 prayer. And so um, Francis and Shelley are taking up that post. We are sending them. You need to know this, all right? It's not that they're jumping in the van now in Henrietta and sailing off into the... That's what they call their van, by the way. Um, um, they're not uh, jumping into Henrietta and heading off into the sunset. We are sending them. We have supported Francis and Shelley in the work of Shalom. We are now supporting them in this new venture. We also need to say that we're very, very supportive of the work of Shalom, and um, as these guys are, and so we're heavily invested in that, and so it's not fading into the background. We're not um, jumping on the bandwagon now and following Francis and Shelley in this new venture and forgetting about that we are, we, that's really important for me to highlight this morning because we continually need help with the work of Shalom and especially the void that these two guys are leaving is incredible in, in a way in a way you sort of think how can we fill it but in another way I think it, it, it pulls people to the fore and so the fact that they're going somewhere else. And I know this is quite emotional for you, but what I'd love us to do, I'd love us to, if Francis and Shelley went down, I'd love us to take a wee bit of time and just pray over them this morning as we send them forth. They've got a little circular um, with a nice photo of them in the front, not lovely. And um, they're at the back, they're on the desk. Lenny will have those at the back. Um, all, basically, all who they are, the calling, what the new monastic community is going to look like, Prayer points are at the back, core practices of the community, and then if you would like to support them financially, there's a, a place on that for that as well. So would you come down with us and let us, let us come down onto the floor, because I'd love our elders to come up, and um, I'd also love anybody that want to head down, and I'll go with you as well. I'll turn these off, and then we'll not get any feedback. Um, anybody involved in the work of Shalom? Oh, well, I'm going to tell you. Anybody wants to come up and come up. All right. Uh, so let's get around them. If you like just to, we want to lay hands on them this morning and send them forth. They're going to be up and down, all right? This Dublin, it's not 
um, Australia. So uh, they are going to be up and down. We're going to see plenty of them, I would imagine. So, uh, so let's, uh, let's, let's really reach our hands out and pray for these guys. Father, we just want to say thank you for Francis and Shelley. We want to thank you for their yes to the call. And um, we know this is hard because it's not just the people they love. It's their families as well. And so the wrench is difficult, and, um, but they're obedient to the call. And we're going to talk about that this morning, even um, when in an obedience, the disciples were in the place of obedience when the storm hit. And um, so it's important that they're in the place of obedience. And so as they go and set up uh, a sort of a new adventure and a new life in Dublin, down in the Lucan Center, Father, we just want to pray your abundance upon them. We want to pray financial abundance upon them. We want to pray physical health upon them. Lord, we just pray that you would give them favor with the communities there, with the church leaders there, with the people there. And Father, we are excited to follow this journey. And Lord, we are mindful of the work of Shalom this morning as well. We continue to lift up the work of Shalom to you, Father. We pray, God, that you would raise up people and leaders, Father, that would step into that work in North Lurgan. Thank you for those who continue to help. But Lord, um, we, we need more. And so, Father, we just pray for that. So, Lord, uh, we just send you forth, um, Francis and Shelley, this morning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And we just pray your abundance, O oh God, to be upon this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give them a round of applause. Bless you. you. Great. Um, I was going to chance that step up there, but after falling last Sunday, I didn't want to do it again. So, you're all right, Tony. I'm glad you missed it. <laughs> I didn't miss it. Um, uh, I want to talk to you this morning. Next, next Sunday, next Sunday um, Dave and I are going to give to you, uh, we're going to begin a new series and about crossing over, about generations. We are going to be talking about all of the generations, young and old, um, and um, we have a title agreed with that, and then we sort of disputing it a little bit, So, um, but, but we'll keep that for next week. Um, but I thought what I'd do is this week I would set up a little bit of a, 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 a prelude to our new series. And I want to do that. I want to challenge you because... This is a word that has been, I've been chewing on this for about two months now, maybe especially over the last six weeks, really got stuck in one little passage in Mark 6 and I couldn't get out of it. Now, the new road, new rules, you've heard my story, but it bears telling again, 2006, I did my motorbike test in Cambridge in England and um, the guy who trained me was a bit of a character. He would drop an odd um, swear bomb and then he called me the vicar. And so if that happened, if somebody pulled out or something and he, and he, he, he swore, he would then quickly apologize. I had a little earpiece in my ear and he would quickly apologize and say, sorry about that, vicar. Um, but he had this little line where you, when, when you took off the, uh, he would say, right, at the next junction, take right. And when you took right, what he would say immediately, he would say, right, vicar, new road, new rules. And what he meant was that... Um, what he meant was that now the 
what maybe existed on the old road with the road that I was on, now there was a, maybe a new rule. There was a speed limit I turned into or turned out of or that. So you had to look for the new rules. And I, I, I've loved that. I've used it many, many times because I think it's really important. And I don't think it was ever as important as it is this morning. And I think this message is a daunting message. This is a message that has kept me up at night and, um, it's, and woken me early in the morning. It's a new season in the natural. It's a new season in the spiritual. And what a, what a powerful time. Now that our kids are all back to school and we're back into some kind of rhythm that we remind ourselves of what we spent last September all of the month on was our four um, member our quadrant about how we get into rhythms and prayer and abiding into our family and relationships, into our work or our mission, um, and into our rest and our health, and um, really important. So, as I say, over the last number of weeks, really, um, Mark 6, 45 to 56 has really stuck in my head. I've read it, I was going to say hundreds of times, and I'm sure I have, where Jesus walks on the water in the middle of a storm. Now, Mark is an interest in this middle gospel. We did a series in Mark, and Mark is the shortest of the gospels, but has more miracles and more of the workings of Jesus than any of the other gospels, indeed in some of them combined. And he's um, called, a, he, he sees Jesus as the son of God. He wants us to recognize who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of God. So he jumps from one thing to the other. He, the key word in um, Mark's gospel is immediately. If you read it, you'll underline how many times he says immediately. It was like this, and he jumps from one thing to the other. That's what he does. Now, um, and so all of his writings, his whole 16 chapters, all prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, let me give you the context of the walking on the water, all right? It's Mark 6, and it's in John 6. Actually, the miracle um, that prelude, that pre, uh, just just comes right before, right? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to talk about the day before the storm and the day after the storm to give you the context of the storm. Does that make sense? So let's go to the day of the storm, the day before it. It was the feeding of, we know it as the feeding of the 5,000. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 short changes a little bit because Matthew tells us that um, it was men only, not, not including women and children. So it's a fair estimation to reckon there could have been upwards of 25,000 people. Most theologians agree with that figure. That there was in around 25,000 people. It was the biggest miracle that Jesus ever done. It involved more people in, the, in the sorting it out, and it affected more people than any other miracle that Jesus done. It is the only miracle, uh, excluding the resurrection, that all four Gospels mention. So all four Gospels mention two miracles, the resurrection of Jesus and the feeding of the multitudes. And um, this miracle of the feeding of the multitudes is the peak of power in Jesus' ministry. This is his moment. It's a, 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 as I say, it affects more people and uses more people than any other miracle that he done. It's also the peak of his popularity, all right? He is two years into his public ministry, and he has gone through Galilee, the Galilee region, twice. And this is his third. This is his final run through Galilee. He knows he's not going to be coming back. And so he has chosen his 12 disciples. They're chosen now to follow him. 
and to continue his work, and the enthusiasm for Jesus' ministry reaches fever pitch after this miracle. John 6 records this for us. It says that after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, after they saw him produce all this food out of a lunch, they said, surely this is the prophet to come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they intended um, uh, to, to make him king by force, to come and make him king by force, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, these people looked at Jesus as a miracle worker. They saw him healing their sick, raising their dead, and now he's providing food for them. This is the, this is, they think, this is our man. And they are ready to overthrow Rome itself. It's pretty incredible. They're ready to overthrow Herod and all the little Herodians. They, um, they, this was the crowd's response to this massive miracle. Now, the problem was they wanted the momentary things. They, they had no substance and no content in their heart. They had no love for Jesus. They were just taking all of the, They were a group primed and ready for the prosperity gospel. They were just, gimme, gimme, gimme. Just gimme it now, and it'll be all okay. And, um, and, and so on the very next day, after the storm, we'll meet this same crowd again. And they, John 6 tells us, in the morning after the storm, all the people have crossed over. So they've crossed over. They get up in the morning. They realize the boat's gone. They realize Jesus isn't there. They realize that he's at the other side. And so they make the four-mile seal, which it was by sea, because it tells us, John 6 tells us, loads of little boats were there. So they jumped into these boats and said, if he's at the other side, we're going to follow him. So those that didn't go by boat walked the eight miles. So it was eight miles by foot, four miles by boat. And, um, and so when they arrive, instead of breakfast, they're there looking for their breakfast. So you fed us last night, Jesus. So let's cook the breakfast. Let's get something to eat. And Jesus gives probably one of the biggest sermons besides the Sermon on the Mount. He gives one of the biggest sermons that he ever gave. And it was the sermon, we know it as the Sermon of the Bread of Life. And you can read it in John 6. I haven't time to read it now, but it's right from verse 32 to 59. It's a big sermon. And in this sermon, Jesus basically tells them that he didn't come to feed their bodies, but he came to feed their souls. He actually challenges them. He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can't be part of me. He gives it to them. He gives it to them. He, he says, I didn't come to sort out your problems. I didn't come to make you happy. He said, I didn't come to lead a rebellion. I came to give you eternal life. I came to feed your soul. And so what happens as a result of this, this is the day after the storm now. Um, the, it's recorded again in John 6, 60 to 70. I'll read a couple of the verses to pick them up. It says, from this time, many of his disciples, see that? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It's interesting, isn't it? And then, so basically, by breakfast time, on the morning after the storm, there's 12 men left. Everybody else is gone. The crowd's gone. 25,000 people are gone. Even some of the disciples that had followed him for two years, right up to this point, some of these Followers of the rabbi decided, you can read it yourself when you go home. It's too hard. It's too tough. This call is taking too much. I don't think I can commit to it anymore. 
and they left. And at that point, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to leave too, do you? And, and Simon Peter steps up. This is the first time that he steps up to be the spokesman for the group. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? So he's speaking for the group, all right? He says, you have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus replied, look at this. Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Everybody else is gone. 25,000 plus people have decided it's not worth it. And he's left. Now, um, I had to wonder when I read this, what convinced Peter at this point? What, why did Peter say, you have the words of eternal life? We have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. Now, it wasn't the miracle of loaves and fishes that done it, because chapter um, John 6, um, 52, that's the verse that tells us that the disciples stopped. But in this one, it says they, they didn't understand about the loaves. They hadn't got it. So it wasn't the miracle of the loaves and fishes that convinced them. So what convinced them? What convinced Peter on the next morning after the storm? What convinced him to say, you're the Holy One of God. We have come to believe that you are the one. We know you are the one. What was it? Well, let's go back to the storm, right? That's the context. That's the day before and the day after. Let's talk about the storm, all right? Ten minutes, three points, really, really important and really significant for the day and age in which we live. Immediately, there's Mark's famous word. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. It says, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone in the land. And he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and he said, take courage at his eye, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. And then here's the next day. This is the next morning, all right? When they'd crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. They anchored there, and as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region, carried the sick on their mats to wherever they heard he was, and wherever he went, into villages, towns, countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. The Lord always honors the public reading of his word, and today is no different, so we say, speak, Lord, your sons and your daughters are listening. I'm going to jump in and out of this a little bit, and I hope I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm just trying to, I'm trying to put about six, seven weeks into 10 or 15 minutes. It's really hard. At this moment on the lake, at this moment in the middle of the storm, the kingdom of God on planet Earth is in one boat. We know in the next few hours, everybody else is going to leave. And so all that survives of the kingdom of God at this moment on the lake is Jesus in a mountain on earth and 12 men in a boat in the middle of a storm. Is it any wonder the enemy wanted to take them out? 
It is any wonder this storm was supernatural that time. And so their rescue is essential. Their rescue is essential. This is a moment that would change the world. This is the moment that I believe one of the most strategic moments in all of the history of God's calendar. This is the moment that the enemy would try to wipe out the church. This is the moment he had them. They're in a boat. They're all together. It's like all going down on a plane. They're all going to go down in a boat. And the enemy's out to, to destroy the hope of the world. And um, so their rescue is essential. And, and, and what we see is from our chat is that the, the miracles hadn't done it. But something happened to them on the sea that night. Something happened. They had an encounter with Jesus that night that would change their lives forever. Whatever happened that night, and I can't wait to get home to heaven to ask a little bit more about it, but whatever happened that night took the disciples from wandering to worshiping. It took the disciples from fear to faith. It changed their lives forever. This was the moment. This was the moment that there was no turning back. This was the moment that sealed their destiny. And isn't it interesting, in the middle of all that, Jesus allowed Judas into the boat with them. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? The Bible actually tells us he knew he was a devil. <laughs> the mercy of God and the long-suffering of God. So what happened was there was three big scenes. There was the intercession of Jesus. There was the rescue of the disciples. And of course, we see the next morning Jesus' love for the people. Even though they would fail him and they would run away, he loved on them and he healed them and he gave to them anyway. That's just what Jesus does. So quickly, the intercession of Jesus, Right? And um, let's look at this. After leaving them, it says, he went up to a mountainside to pray. What was he praying for? Well, it's obvious what he was praying for. Jesus knew the end from the beginning. He knew that this was a strategic moment. He knew that if the disciples didn't survive this storm, that he was, back to, he was going to have to go to a plan B. And God doesn't go to plan Bs. God doesn't have plan Bs. And so Jesus went up onto the mountain to commune and intercede before the Father for these 12 men who were about to go through the roughest night of their life. And what he does is he intercedes. Remember we taught on this last year where intercession is coming between two things. Where you stand in the gap and you take hold of one thing and you take hold of God and you pull them together. And you intercede on behalf of them until you build what we called an intersection. And that intersection allows one to pass through to the other. That's what intercession does. So you grab one and here's these boys in the boat. Father, I'm, if, if we don't do something, the enemy's going to take them out. So he grabs his father and he pulls them together and he pulls the supernatural power of God into an earthly scene where he comes and he takes control of the very storm, winds and waves. When I got up this morning at half five or a quarter to six, the wind was blowing and the rain was howling and it was battering off the window. And I thought, I'm going to talk about a storm today. And the storm is here. And by seven o'clock, I thought, Jesus, you've just calmed the storm. It was completely still. And the sky started to turn blue. And, and, and so Jesus is... is he, it's imperative for the kingdom of God that these guys make it through. So he climbs onto a mountain. He gets alone with the... Now, here, here's, the, here's the thing. It's an all-night prayer. This intercession isn't simple. They got into the boat. It was evening when they got in. In, the, in their Jewish calendar, they had four evenings. It started from six to nine, 
from nine to six, from nine to midnight, from midnight to three, and then from three to six. That was their four sort of night watches they talked about. So they got into the boat in the first watch. They got into the boat somewhere between six o'clock and nine o'clock, say seven or eight o'clock at night. By the time Jesus walks on the water, it's around, it's just before dawn, it's around 5 a.m. in the morning. These experienced sailors have been in the boat all night. And it says, here's the thing, it says later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Now it's really interesting this because if you look at the, if you look at the calendar or if you look at the geography, if you look at the map of Galilee, and I've been there, Beth- Bethsaida is along the coast, right? So basically what they would do is they would get into the boat at Galilee and they would sail the four mile, they would sail along the coast. They would know this. This is the safest way to go. These sailors, four, we know... We know for sure four of them were fishermen and there could, as possible, as many as seven were fishermen. So these guys knew these waters. They knew these waters like the back of their hand and they were to sail along the coast, but by later that night, the boat's out in the middle of the lake. It's probably, which is eight miles, so it's probably they're about four miles out in the middle of the lake. They're way off course. And... Um, uh, So Jesus has to do something. And so the second point is the rescue of the disciples. Jesus sees them. I wonder how. They're four mile out. I'm not dead sure how close Jesus was to the sea, but you can't see four mile naturally. So supernaturally, the eye of God is never from us. He sees us. I love this. It says that he, he, here's what it tells us. It says that, he saw the disciples straining at the oars. These guys are exhausted. This is spiritual warfare at its worst. When I wrote that yesterday, I wrote spiritual warfare at its best. And then I thought, no, that doesn't sound right. And I changed it to spiritual warfare at its worst. This is at its worst. I'm not sure you noticed this, but at the very beginning of our text, it's really important to understand this. Jesus made them get into the boat. That word in the Greek, made, short, changes a little bit. It means that he used force. He knew this was the moment. Jesus knew this was the moment for planet Earth. And so he knows if these guys stay around, they're, going to get, they're probably going to get taken off by the crowd. They're going to get influenced by all the wrong people. And so he makes them, he shoes them into the boat. He he makes his disciples get into the boat. This is pretty incredible. And uh, I think this was a redemptive moment for them. And, uh, and I think this is what it means to be chosen in Christ. And maybe this morning, he has shooed you into a boat. Maybe he has pushed you into a situation. Because the redemptive nature of God is that um, he, he sometimes, this is, this is not every preacher is going to tell you this now, but sometimes he pushes you into conflict. I believe that. Sometimes you get pushed into conflict. And it, we would never know who David is until he slew his giant. Pushed into conflict. And sometimes you might, the world might never know who you are until you slay your giant. And so this is idea. Um, and so he comes and um, they think it's a ghost. 
course, they, they think it's a ghost. It was a myth that phantoms of the night appeared to bring disaster. So these guys are terrified. They're wondering, is this myth true? What's happening here? And Jesus makes to pass them by. Now, this is a horrible rendering of um, Greek literature, all right, because it doesn't mean that at all. It actually means to draw alongside them. It doesn't mean that he had this intention to ignore them and let just drown their boys and I'm away onto the shore. That's not the, what it means. It was to draw alongside. He was coming, he was coming alongside them. Now, here, here's the thing. You need to grab this. Um, in, in Exodus 33, twice over in that one chapter, God talks about passing by Moses. Both times were to reveal something of his glory. As a matter of fact, the second time, let's read them and then we'll not misquote them. He says, and Moses said, um, show me your glory, right? And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass by, to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my Lord, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on him, I will have mercy. I will have compassion on him, I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one can see it and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock and when my glory passes by, do you see it? Um, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, back but my face must not be seen. Whatever Jesus revealed to them as he drew alongside them tonight was the clincher. I don't know what it was. Maybe it could have been a transfiguration moment. I don't know. But something happened. He drew alongside them and he revealed something to them that would change their lives forever. I think he, I think he, he, he revealed something to them that they couldn't even put into words. And I'll show you that in a moment or two. Um, I, uh, I love this, that Jesus is God in flesh. And Jesus is doing in flesh and blood what God could only do in the Old Testament in wind and voice. God couldn't reveal his full glory in the Old Testament. Jesus comes and he reveals his full glory to these men in a boat in the middle of a storm. It's pretty awesome, really. And here's, here, here's, here's my deal, all right? What if we could be living in such a moment? What if Francis and Shelley, this is the moment, Tony and Sonia, what if this is the moment, what if this is the moment where obedience pushes you out into the middle of a lake when you think you'd probably be safer along the side of a shore? What if this is the moment that the church at large will say it's too hard? Because I think there'll be a great falling away. I think we're in the middle of it. I think what will happen will be many people will say it's too hard. It's too hard. And that's why I think God's calling his elect. And I think we're in a moment. I think we're in a moment like we've never been in before. And I think the coming of the Lord draws nigh. I drove through Moyer the other night and I saw that. It's been there my whole lifetime on the wall. We are living in that moment. And God is calling his elect. And God is coming alongside by the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit to reveal something of himself 
that I think will take us the next phase. And I think some will miss it. And um, when Jesus spoke those great words, he spoke those words, he said, take courage as I. Give me another five minutes. I'll finish at 10 too, okay? Just I think this is really important. Um, he spoke these words because um, I think we're living in a passing by moment. We're living in a moment where Jesus is drawing alongside like never before and you could miss him. You could miss him. Even good stuff could make you miss him. Not just bad stuff. Jesus spoke to them and he said, take courage as I... And look this up. This phrase happens eight times in the New Testament. Seven in the Gospels and once in Acts 23 when Jesus is talking to Paul and all, every, every, every single one of them, all eight of them are out of the mouth of the Lord. All right? Um, and could this be a word to us in a world that's gripped in panic and fear? See, see the, the, the be not afraid phrase happens right through from Genesis to Revelation. It stretches right across the Bible over a hundred times, actually. And um, could it be that God is in control and he's drawing alongside to reveal something to us? And as I say, many, I think, will fall away. But he'll use the element we fear as a path for his feet. <laughs> the fear out there in the world at the moment is wild. We've just got to watch the evening news. The fear, the panic, what's going to happen? How are we going to pay our bills? How are we going to get through this winter? Fear and panic. The storm that threatened to destroy the disciples was the very thing that Jesus used to walk on. The very thing that they thought would destroy him, he used as a footpath to deliver them. And here's the thing. These men were in the place of obedience. That's what I said to you, Francis and Shelley. In the place of obedience. And even though they're in the middle of the lake, even though they're out of control, even though the boat is swamped with water, maybe that's why Peter wanted to jump out of it. Talk about that in a moment. But um, in the middle of that, in the middle of all that, they were in the place of obedience because Jesus made them get into the boat. This was his idea. And so while it was the roughest place to be, it was the safest place to be because they were in the hands of Almighty. And isn't it amazing that actually Mark doesn't mention Peter walking in the water? We have to go to Matthew. We have to go to other Gospels to read that. And yet Mark is the Gospel. Mark wasn't an eyewitness to this. Mark penned his known um, theologically, that Mark penned his gospel through the voice of Peter. So later on in life, Peter sat down with a young man and told all of this story, and Mark penned it at Peter's voice, and he never told his own story. Isn't that pretty awesome? Come to a point where he was so humble that he thought, it's not about me. It's not about me walking in water. Actually, Matthew recorded it anyway. So, so it's not about me. He didn't want us to take our eyes off Jesus. And here's the idea. Jesus' love for people. The next day, Jesus just poured out his love on the people and they all left. But what made these boys stay? And I finished with this. I think it was a personal, private encounter with the Lord that they made that night that actually John 6 records this and I love this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away for I have come down from heaven not to do my will but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him 
so I'll have eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day. Folks, this is a strategic moment in history. And um, I think we're stirring something in the face. Don't think it's just going to go on the way it is. We're stirring something in the face, in the spiritual realm that I don't think I've ever seen in my whole life. And um, one of the greatest disasters in history took place in 1271. Niccolo and Matteo Polo, who were the father and uncle of Marco Polo, um, were visiting the, the Kublai Khan. The, 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 at that time, he was the world leader over China, India, and all of the East, 1271. And they told him about Jesus, and the Khan gave his life to Jesus. And um, he said to them, Go back to your hierarchy, go back to your high priest and tell him to send me a hundred men skilled in your religion to tell this story of Jesus and I'll turn China and India and the East to follow this Jesus. I'll baptize all of my hierarchy, all of my barons. We will, we will have more Christians in the East than in all the world combined. These guys went back but nothing happened. 30 years later, two or three missionaries went, but it was too little too late. And um, it baffles the imagination to think what a difference to the world it could have made if China, who's a quarter of the world's population, had become fully Christian in the 13th century and the East had been given to Christ. And I think these men missed the opportunity and the purpose of God was frustrated. And could it be, could it be that God was trying to create an incredible shift that will change the course of history. And I don't want to miss it, Robbie. And I know your generation doesn't either. We don't want to miss this. And I think together we can do it. I think as we cross the generations, I think we can do it. I think we can, we, we can take this city for Jesus. I think we can take this land for Jesus. I think people will turn and walk away and say, it's too hard. And we're going to have to take that in the chin. And so we're not going to be domineered by how many people we have in our buildings or by how many people come to our meetings, but how many people actually love Jesus with all of their hearts. And Jesus is passing by, folks. He's passing by. And many will find it hard and will stop following. But what about you? Are you ready to follow him? Are you ready for a fresh revelation of who he is that will change your life? Sorry, my time's gone, but I had to land that this morning. I hope my ramblings landed. Lord, I seal your word to us. We stand in a strategic moment in history. And as we move into this season, we want to say, yes, Lord, we, we want to follow you. Yes, Lord, it's been a storm. Yes, Lord, the boat is swamped. But Lord, I want to follow you with all of my life. Or whatever's left. Let's number our days, folks. For the days are evil. Let's number our days. Some of us have more than others. But let's number our days. Let's make them count. Let's not waste a moment as we give our lives to Jesus in this new season and in this new generation. In Jesus' name, amen.